All right, we're going to do something a little bit different today. So while the kids are still in here, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Some of you are looking at me stunned. This is not the right order. There's a purpose. Luke 18, and kids, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke 18, that would be great as well. We have been going through the book of Luke for more than a year now in our series, Our Certain Salvation. And we are in Luke chapter 18, and this week's passage, the first three verses, cried out to, to include our children. So I hope there's some babies crying and, and other things happening, because that would be a fantastic help here. Uh, I'm going to read Luke 18, verses 15 through 17, and we're going to talk for five minutes, and then, believe me, five minutes, and then... Believe me, Andy. (laughs) He doesn't believe me. And then we're going to dismiss our kids to their time. Luke 18, verses 15 through 17. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. I wanted the kids in here because I want you kids to hear a little bit of what we do when we dismiss you. Um, We hear from God's word just like you guys hear a lesson from God's word because we think that the Bible is the word of God and that's why we teach it. And thanks for the sound effects. That's perfect. That, that is exactly what I needed. Because even infants, in verse 15, we're coming to Jesus. Uh, this is Jesus' children's ministry. Okay? This is Jesus' children's ministry. The disciples thought Jesus wasn't in uh, children's ministry. That he had to deal with adults. And that children had no place here. But you'll notice that Jesus wants even infants to come to him. Infants, this word in Greek, is primarily babies and toddlers. It could be uh, children that are uh, maybe a little bit older, early elementary. But there's little ones being brought to Jesus that he might what? He might touch them. Why? He's a rabbi, and the, the parents may have thought that this would uh, allow for him to bless the children. We do this in important circumstances, right? We lay hands on. There is a, a solemnity to it. There's a, a seriousness to the laying on of hands. And we know that touch is really important. For our little ones, we know that they need to be touched. They need to be held and they need to be snuggled. This is important for their health. This is important for the health of all of us, whatever our age is. And so I would encourage you to hug Terry Hall as much as you can. (laughs) So glad Terry got back. The infants are being brought to Jesus so that he can touch them. And, and the disciples say, no, go, go away. Stop. Jesus has more important things to do than to deal with little ones. And so little ones who are with us today, I want you to know that Jesus thinks that you're important. Jesus is not waiting for you to get older. Jesus is not waiting for you to learn how to read. Jesus is not learning for you how to, to read really big, thick books. Jesus wants you to come and hear about him. Jesus wants you to come and be saved from your sin. And that's why we want to teach you the Bible 
from the youngest of our ages. So uh, letter A in your notes, if you're taking notes, Jesus values children and so should we. And I forgot to give you point number one, which is following Jesus is like being a trusting child. A trusting child. So kids, we need to be like you. Not because you're innocent and not sinful. You are little sinners, aren't you? Do you sometimes disobey your parents? I was looking at my kids. <laughs> Do you disobey your parents sometimes? Yeah, junior hires don't, but okay. Yeah, do you, do you want things that other people have? Did you steal a cookie recently? These are things not that we should be like children in that way, but that we should be like children and that children depend on parents and other adults for their things, right? You, you parents know or you remember your little kids, they just come in expecting, what's for dinner? Food, because I can't make it, so you have to give it to me. Is that what you do? Yeah. Asking for things, depending on others for things, and then this simple trust, right? The simple trust that most children have. You'll take care of me. You love me. You will help me. You will provide for me. And Jesus says this is how adults need to come into the kingdom of God. Not trusting in their own smarts, not trusting in any degrees that they might have, not trusting in your salary, not trusting in your 401k, but trusting in God as a child trusts in a parent. God, you'll take care of me. I trust you. So point B in your notes is we need to be childlike, but not childish. Okay, we need to be childlike, not childish. So I'm not promoting us to be a little more giggly this morning. And start tickling people around. Okay, don't be childish. Paul said when he, when he became a man, he put away childish things. But we need to be childlike in our faith. Children, they're open to being helped. That's one of the first words they learn is help. They cry out for help before they even know how to speak. I'm hungry. Change my diaper. Change my diaper now. Where are you? Change my diaper. I know where the video monitor is. I'm looking at you, mom. (laughs) This is what children do. They express their need. They cry out their need. Adults, we don't do that. We, We can take care of ourselves. Because we're smart. We've been through a few things. We know how to take care of us, ourselves. And maybe, maybe if things get out of control, we'll ask God for help then. But see, we need to be like children and simply... Trust them. My children trust me today to drive 300 miles to the woods so they can go on vacation. They didn't plan this. They didn't look at the maps and say, Dad, would you consider maybe taking the 5 instead of the 99? They don't know any of that stuff. They just simply trust me to take them on vacation. Pastor Ron frequently reminds me and AJ that our ministry is from God and for people. So let us not be distracted by good and right tasks that we forget about the sheep that are God's flock. And may we never get in the way of people coming to Jesus, especially our children. May Village always, always, always highly value children and the things they teach us. So kids, we're going to dismiss you now to your time, but we want to let you know that God loves you and that we love you, and you need to thank your teachers today because they love you a lot and teach you God's words. We're going to continue 
in, uh, in Luke 18. And after Jesus um, talks with these uh, children and blesses them and touches them and holds them and rebukes his disciples um, for not accepting children, there, there's just one last thing we need to, to note. Um, in, in our culture, we value children. Um, I know uh, the abortion issue is super contradictory, but for our little ones who are outside of the womb, our culture highly values them. Um, our healthcare system, um, we think that they're cute. We take lots of pictures of them. This is not how the ancients viewed children for a few reasons. Um, one is that children had no social status. And, and you can understand this if you think about how many children died um, in infancy or as little children. Um, so many children perished that it is understandable that children sometimes were not seen as having any social status until they reached a certain age because they might not be around or they couldn't contribute anything to society. So there was no sentimental views of, of babies. There were not as many ahs as there are today. That was not a thing um, that would happen. And so because of that, the disciples are acting like everybody else in their time. They're just acting like the world. And so one scholar went so far as to say this about Jesus. One will search ancient literature in vain for sympathy towards the young comparable to that shown them by Jesus. Jesus stands out among the ancients as one who values, highly values children. Think about how often kids get in the way. They slow you down. They suck on your finances till they're gone. Some of you are like, oh, no. Some of you are nodding. Yes, you know. Think about the 20 or more years that you devote to those children. Think about that and think about how Jesus values children. He says, no, bring them to me. In fact, don't hinder them. Jesus, as he already has in the book of Luke earlier, points out once again that we have much to learn from our little ones. So our little ones are gone, but our youngest ones in here are our junior high and high school age. And I want to commend to you junior high and high schoolers that you, think about this, you have much to teach some of the old people in here. You have much to teach them. And old people... So if you're, you know, 25 or older, don't forget that you have much to learn from our little ones. So don't serve in children's ministry. Don't serve in the nursery. Don't serve in Awana. Don't serve those crazy people known as junior hires without remembering that you have much to learn from them. It is really selfish for you to say, well, me, all 34 years I have much to pour into you, young one. There's also much that I have forgotten and need to remember about what it means to have childlike trust. Again, let's be childlike but not childish. It is right after this that Luke includes the story of the rich ruler. So if you look at verse 18, Luke 18, 18, this is where we'll go next. And Jesus has an extended interaction with both the ruler and the ruler's response to their conversation. So point number two in your notes, following Jesus is impossibly rewarding. 
Following Jesus is impossibly rewarding. I want to read this whole section, 18 to 30, and then we'll look at it in depth. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This interaction that Jesus has with the ruler, we find out in in Matthew's account that he's a young ruler. Does that mean he's a synagogue leader? Does that mean he's a Pharisee? Does that mean he's an elder? Perhaps he's a secular city official. We don't know. But he's a ruler. He he has status. He's in charge. In fact, he's the exact opposite of the children in the passage before. He has all kinds of status. In fact, people need to defer to him, to serve him, to make sure he is first. And he comes to Jesus in a way that is very unchildlike. And I think that Luke puts these two passages right next to each other for us to compare Jesus accepting the children and teaching about the children and then this very wealthy ruler coming to Jesus. Look at what the ruler says back in verse 18. He calls Jesus what? Good teacher. Okay, what's he trying to do? He might gain favor. He might be flattering. Um, he, He might think that this is just what you do. To call the teacher good. Maybe he's buttering him up. I tend to lean towards some flattery here. Jesus, I think, gives us the, gives us the, the reason to see it that way because the way Jesus responds. Now, the question is incredible. It's a great question, right? How many of you had someone come up to you this week and said, hey, how do I inherit eternal life? Did anybody? That would be fantastic, right? This is an evangelism opportunity, right? This happens and you're like, oh, shoot, uh... I think, oh, my God, gospel. Okay. Here, make your little presentation. Or maybe you got a tract in your, in your pocket or something. Or you've got a little Bible that you can hand out. Or you're Fred Johnson and you give him more than a carpenter. Okay? Jesus, what does Jesus do? Jesus goes back to the very title that he uses and rejects it. Why do you call me good? I mean, the, the ruler had all kinds of reasons to call him good. Flattery being the first one. Second, if Jesus was, a, was a, a rock star now, everybody knew who Jesus was. They were following him in huge crowds. They were coming to him to see miracles. He taught God's word. He cast out demons. Jesus says, why do you call me good? 
And then he says this, no one is good except God alone. And, and many, many cults and uh, Muslims and people from other religions and atheists have pointed out to this verse and say, look, Jesus is saying he's not God because he's saying he's not good. And I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus accepts worship at other times. Jesus teaches about his sinlessness. And here he says, no one is good except God alone. But what is the ruler searching for? How do I inherit eternal life? What is the word inherit about? Getting stuff from family. Getting stuff from family. This is a, probably a Jewish man then, I think. And he's asking, how do I inherit eternal life? Or maybe he's asking, how do I know for sure that I have eternal life when the end comes? And Jesus wants to slow the man down. Because the man, it seems, wants to come up and say, give me the answer. How do I know? Jesus tells him, bam, I'm in. Good, thanks, Jesus. I'm out of here. I just needed you to confirm that for me in my life. Jesus slows him down and says, no one is good except God alone. Jesus is referencing all kinds of Old Testament scripture. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. He wants to slow him down and say, you don't just casually throw that word around. Good. This word is talking about, uh, it could be leaning towards perfection. It could be leaning towards righteousness. This man thinks probably that he's already good and he wants to get some confirmation. But Jesus says, no, no, hold on a second. When we're talking about good, we're talking about God. So I think Jesus wants to show the ruler, what are our standards here? What are our standards for this? And he points to God and says, God is the only one who is good. Which means he's putting the righteousness of God in this unattainable atmosphere that you, ruler, cannot get to. So he wants the ruler to stop and to think. And then Jesus does something that may seem counterintuitive, but Jesus begins to tell him the commandments. And if you'll notice, he gives a little bit out of order, but Jesus gives the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth commandments from the 10th. Okay? From the second tablet of the law. The second side, and they all have to do with others. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, and honor your father and mother. These are all how you treat other people. Jesus is pointing this out, um, I believe, because he wants him to see that the way we treat others indicates what we think about God, which is exactly what Jesus said to the man who asked a very similar question in Luke chapter 10. A lawyer came up to Jesus and said, he didn't say good teacher, but he said, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus asked him some questions and then told the parable of the good Samaritan, which was how the Samaritan treated people. And then he said, go and do likewise. So Jesus is getting him to think about how does he treat others? And, and the man says in verse 21, all these I have kept from my youth. And I wonder what you do when you read that. I think some of us probably say, <laughs> okay, here's the problem, right? And that's what I thought going into this. But I was looking and, and a lot of Jews of that time who were pious, who were righteous, who were following the law, would not consider themselves to be perfect, but would consider themselves to have kept the law. Why? Because God gave them in the Old Testament the sacrificial system so that if they sinned, they had a way of taking care of it. So I think that, that this Jewish man does not think that he's perfect. He doesn't think that he's never sinned. But he thinks that he has followed God's law carefully, and so therefore he is righteous. And Jesus 
is trying to lead him along and show him that he is not. All these I have kept from my youth. Now, it's interesting that Jesus does not mention the first tablet, the first four commandments. And he interestingly also doesn't mention the 10th commandment, which is you shall not covet, inordinately desire, maybe lust to want more. Now watch what Jesus does in response to this. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have. Sell all that you have. Think about that right now about your life. What would that mean if Jesus said to you in person, face to face, you sell all that you have and distribute to the poor? Well, my first response would be like, Jesus, what does all mean? All to sell my van? Because I kind of need that to serve other people. What does sell all that you have mean and distribute to the poor? Notice this incredible thing that Jesus says to him. He wants him to sell all that he has. He says, okay, I'm not even going to dispute with you that you've kept all these laws. Okay, although, you know, Jesus probably could have interviewed the parents and said, honor father and mother. No? Okay, you lied. (laughs) Okay, but he's not even going to go there. He's just going to grant that to him. And what Jesus wants to, to say here is, I think Jesus is subtly taking him back to the first tablet of the Ten Commandments and saying, are there any gods before me? Have you made any idols before me? Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. It's interesting. Um, the, last three, the last two sermons that I preached to you, uh, the last one was uh, the rich man and Lazarus. And the one before that was the rich fool. And today we have a rich ruler. So Amy said, what's the Lord trying to teach you? <laughs> and then she said, what's the Lord trying to teach our church? What is the Lord trying to teach our church? Treasure in heaven is already referenced earlier in Luke. Jesus tells him, get treasure in heaven. That's the most important thing. And he tells this man, the most important thing you can have is treasure in heaven. So get rid of all your stuff. Come, follow me. Now, notice the response. 24. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, seeing that he had become sad. The man is sad. Jesus notices. Jesus is looking. Jesus sees this man. He sees that he has become sad. And he said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I forgot to give you some blanks here, so <laughs> let me back up a minute. Did I give you number two? Following Jesus and possibly running his back? Probably on the screen behind me, huh? Treasure on earth. A treasure on earth often blinds those seeking treasure in heaven. So treasure on earth often blinds those seeking treasure in heaven. I think that's what's happening here. Once we find out the man is rich. And then letter B, God can do what man cannot. God can do what man cannot. Jesus notices the man is sad. The man reacts to Jesus' words, hey, sell all that you have and come follow me. And the man's immediate response 
is sadness. Which is an interesting response, right? He doesn't argue. He's not angry. He doesn't agree. He's sad. And it seems like he doesn't even say anything. Jesus just reads his countenance. Because the man seems to have said, hey, I, I followed all the laws since my youth. Jesus says, good. Hey, one thing you lack. And at, I think at the one thing you lack, the man was like, here it is. This is the answer. All I got to do is this one more thing. And this one more thing is sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. Now listen, Jesus didn't say get rid of everything only. Jesus said get rid of everything and you'll get more. He offered the man more. Treasure in heaven. Notice the man understands what Jesus said and rejects it. He rejects what he clearly understands Jesus is asking him to do. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some of you right now are saying, that's a good thing I'm not rich. And we have lots of things we could say about that. We could talk about the two billion people on the planet who live on less than $2 a day and ask if you're rich. We could ask how many TVs you own. How many devices are in your house? How many cars are in your garage? We can start getting really personal, and we probably will in a few minutes. But this, this is what we need to do. We need to not distance ourselves from this man. We need to realize we are this man. So then Jesus begins to say how difficult it is. So the first, the first thought is, for all of us in this room, we need to think, wow, it's... This is, this is difficult. So some of you have grown up in the church and you think, this is easy. Prayed a prayer when I was five. Jesus is taking care of me. I got my fire insurance. I'm good. But Jesus says it's difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now notice what he says in verse 25. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if you've heard some of these, but you've probably heard some interesting things about this passage if you've been a Christian for a while, sometimes people have said that what Jesus is actually saying, uh, the word for camel is also really close to, to rope or yarn. And so it's just like if you had a big piece of yarn, you can't quite jam it into the eye of the needle. Okay? Or there's another one, there's a legend that doesn't come up until the 11th century, but caught on like wildfire in preacher's illustrations, is that there was, there was once a needle gate in Jerusalem, and when a, when a camel came, the only way to get to the needle gate was for the camel to get low, to take all of its possessions off, and then it could enter the gate. The problem is, we just, there's no evidence of that at all. <laughs> no evidence at all. Also, it blunts the directness of what Jesus is saying here. There's absolutely no evidence of this being a thing. And what it, what it tries to do is say, wow, it's really hard, but they can do it. But the whole point is, what Jesus is going to say in the next verse is, it's impossible. It's impossible. So that's a camel. That's the largest animal that the people in, growing up in Israel knew about. That was the largest animal they would have, hang, have encountered. How many of you have been on an, a camel? Okay, I've been on a camel. Frankly, getting through the eye of a needle gate, that's terrifying. Because then the camel's got to do its thing. It's like riding a roller coaster and then you've got to duck. Okay? That's not what this is talking about. That's a camel. Jeremiah, next one. That's a magnified picture of a fishing needle used to mend nets at a place like some of these guys were fishermen at the Sea of Galilee. 
Now, let me ask you a question. Put your thinking caps on. That's, see, look, that's not actually closed. That's actually a, a nice size eye of a needle. Can the camel fit through the eye of the needle? What's the answer? Is it close? Is it ridiculous? Is it laughable? By the way, I think Jesus is kind of making a little joke here, right? Like, it's so obvious that this is not going to work. Jesus is saying, you can't get a camel through the eye of the needle. You can't do it. I don't care what sci-fi movie you've been watching. You can't get a camel. I know some of you guys are like, well, what if you had to... No. You can't get the camel through the eye of a needle. See, those of you who laughed, we're trying to get around it. That's what we do. We try to get around Jesus' words. Okay. So Jesus is, is giving them an illustration they would understand and saying, it ain't going to happen. It can't happen. Now, look at what the response is. Verse 26. Those who heard it said, this is what they take, the takeaway from those who heard this said, then who can be saved? And they've now opened the door to everybody, not just rich people, right? So the, these hearers, unlike ourselves, are not like, well, I'm not rich. I'm not in the top 1%. Okay, they hear this and they think, how can we be saved? Who can be saved? They get it. They get Jesus' illustration. Jesus' illustration is, you can't do it. Right? And this is, my girls just watched the, the live action Cinderella, right? And they're trying to put the foot into the glass slipper, like, trying to get, it's not even close. It's not like that. It's not even close. There's no attempt. No, you wouldn't even attempt to hold up a needle and try to get a camel through. It's just stupid. It's ridiculous. You can't do that. So they heard this and they understood rightly who can be saved. And Jesus blessedly responds in verse 27. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, that is not to say that we go back and say, well, God's going to make a camel fit. Through. No, it was an illustration of salvation, meaning you can't save yourself. You can't be good enough. You can't be smart enough. It doesn't matter how many doggone people like you. You can't make it. You can't be saved by your own works. It is impossible. So, what we find out is that this man who brought this whole conversation up has actually not kept the commandments. He had clearly violated the first and last of the Ten Commandments because he had a God in the way of God. And his God was his stuff, his riches. They got in the way and I think it's hinted at that Jesus says 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, but doesn't say number 10. I think Jesus is hinting at number 10 also being an issue. You shall not covet. In fact, one of the commentators said the ruler had broken the first commandment by breaking the last. Remember the rich fool from Luke 12? Of course you do. Jesus warned him in that parable that covetousness revealed putting one's worth in what one's, uh, one owns or has. We sang that today. My worth is not in what I own. So the ruler has given an illustration that Jesus takes further and says to all the people around, it's impossible. Now notice Jesus' evangelistic strategy. It stinks. Temporarily, right? A man came to Jesus and said, how can I be saved? And he goes away sad because Jesus said, you can't. 
Don't do that this week, okay? However, what's Jesus doing? Jesus is preparing his disciples and all those following him for what's about to happen. Where are they? They're on the road to Jerusalem. They're getting closer. Next week, we'll see they're almost to Jericho, the last stop before Jerusalem. Now, verse 28. Peter begins to speak up, and that's always good news when Peter speaks up because things get fun. Letter C in your notes. More is promised than what is given up. More is promised than what is given up. Peter says, see, we have left our homes and followed you. Dot, dot, dot. I know that's not in your Bible. That's my version. Peter gets it. Peter says, okay, so this guy, this guy wasn't willing to get rid of all his stuff, and he went away sad. But we gave up all our stuff. So, and by the way, I don't blame Peter here, necessarily. I think you could read this and say Peter's trying to like, like, whoa, 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 hold on a sec. But I, I kind of don't feel that as much in this passage. I kind of feel like Peter's like thinking through stuff. And he says, so we left our stuff. We left our homes. And if you don't remember that, just turn back in the book of Luke to chapter 5 real quick. Luke chapter 5, look at verse 11. This is back in Galilee. Jesus has just helped them get a record number of fish caught in their nets. Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And in verse 11, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Jesus told the rich ruler, sell everything and follow me. Same formula. So Peter and Andrew and James and John and the rest of the disciples, they actually literally have given everything up. They walked off the job site to follow Jesus. Can you imagine that? Jesus shows up at your work. Your boss is there. And he says, hey, you, follow me. And you're like, well, I'm gone. Clock out. No, I'm gone. Following Jesus. They left it. They left on the job. They left their boats. They left their nets. They left the huge catch they just had. That's probably their biggest, best day of business ever. And they leave to follow Jesus. So Peter is speaking truthfully when he says this. Jesus responds, in verse 29, he said to them, truly, I say to you. I mean, Jesus is really trying to get their attention, right? What I'm about to say is really important. There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers, that could be translated siblings, or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, key phrase, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Notice this, Jesus says, you're right, Peter. You did, and you're going to get a huge reward for this. This is going to be good. You're going to get way more than what you gave up. What you gave up in the fishing business, you're going to get way more. And watch what Jesus says, because Jesus doesn't just say, you'll be a little cherub playing a harp on some weird clouds in in the future and look at a cartoon character, okay? And it'll all be nice. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus actually says, you're going to get more in this life. Like before you die and go to heaven, you're going to get way more back on your investment. Do you see that in verse 29? He says, if you gave up a house or you gave up a wife, or by the way, this is not like advocating like splitting up families here. Okay, what it's talking about is the seriousness of following Jesus. Peter was married. We don't know if if his wife stayed in Galilee all the time or followed along, but Peter like. So Peter walked off the job and left his family to follow Jesus. 
And, and if you've left all these things for the sake of the kingdom of God, okay, not for any other reason, right? If you've done it for the right reason, you will, you'll receive many more times in this time. You'll get a lot more now and in the age to come eternal life. So he says, if you follow me, end reward is eternal life. But before that, you're going to get much more back. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about family. You left family, you'll gain family. You'll gain family. He's previewing the church. Because what happens in the book of Acts? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. What, is Paul, what do Paul and Peter and John say when they write these, these people? They call them brothers. They call them sisters. They've gained family. This is what Jesus promises. Jesus promises that the kingdom of God is infinitely more than the kingdom of this world. The rewards in the kingdom of God are infinitely better than the rewards in the kingdom of man, even if you are a rich ruler and have it all. So I wonder what you dream about. I wonder what you think about when you hear that the lotto is at like $247 million, okay? I wonder what you think about when you, you know, you do those like really humble things where like, well, if I won, I'd give most of it to the church. And then I'd get a boat. And then I'd get... <laughs> and then you start thinking about having way more stuff, right? What, what, what do you dream about? Jesus is saying, if, if you are in the kingdom of God, then you are going to receive so much more. And that is what oftentimes we don't believe. Because I can't see that. I can see that nice car. I can see that bigger house. I can see that 401k. I can see that retirement date 10 years earlier than I thought. I can see that. That looks really appealing. This is where faith comes in. Childlike trust. Like a child. Okay, God. I trust you. I rely on you. You'll take care of me. If you say I'll get more in this life than if I stayed, then I believe you. If you promise me eternal life, then I believe you. If you require me to come follow you, I believe you. So what we need to learn from the rich ruler and then the response and Peter's response is we need to to be careful that we don't make excuses here, right? So some people would take this passage and go really, really crazy and say, why do you own anything, Christian? Sell it all. You shouldn't own a home. You're stuck in a mortgage. You can't. They say all these things. I want to be really careful that that we don't go to that extreme, okay? However, I want to be really careful we don't swing the pendulum, okay, and say, well, that was just what Jesus asked that guy to do, and then go on living our lives however we want. I think there's a happy middle here where I think that, yes, Jesus discerned this man's problem, this man's specific issue, and then zeroed in on it like a laser and said, you need to sell all you have and follow me. The reason I know this is because in the next chapter, he doesn't require Zacchaeus to sell all he has. Zacchaeus only sells half. Only. So sell half. No, okay. But Jesus doesn't require that of Zacchaeus. Because Jesus is looking at hearts and he's looking at motivations and he knows that this ruler is in the grip of possessions. That stuff has his heart. And that the only way he can follow God is to get rid of his stuff. He's got to get rid of it. So what do we do? We need to think about the why question. And I think that sometimes we skip the why question often 
And then we excuse it by saying, well, I'm just being a good steward. I'm just being a good steward. Well, that's fine. Okay? You be a good steward of, of God's possessions for God. For God's ends. Not for yours. So, why do you own your home? Why? Why do you own your home? Why do you own your second home? Why? Why are you in that timeshare? Why do you have that car or those cars? Why do you have that boat? Why do you have that jet ski? Why do you have all those books? Why do you have all those movies? Why do you have all those TVs? Why do you have all those devices? Why do you have all those collections and other hobbies and things? Why? Answer the question honestly with God. And then keep it if you have a good answer to the why. Okay? This is something I think that we don't think about though. Why? Because it's the American dream. And I achieved it. I'm on your own? Okay. Right, there's a problem. We need to ask the why question. The man who comes to Jesus just wants confirmation that the way he's living his life is the right way. And when it's not confirmed, he goes back and lives it that way anyway. When we are confronted with the truth that God gives to us, we must conform ourselves to that or we are not following him. So I think that God is creative enough to talk to each one of his children and to get in your face about your stuff. Now, some of you junior high and high school are like, I don't have anything. Good. Learn it now before you have anything. Learn this lesson now because stuff has a grip on our hearts. One of the scholars said, we orbit around the things that have the biggest pull on us. Okay, like an asteroid. We just, we just, we orbit around it. And what, what needs to happen is we need something with a stronger magnetic pull to get us out of that grip. I don't know what it is in your life or what it is in all of our lives, but there, there's stuff is insidious. That's why you can't park in your garage. Stuff. We gotta have stuff. You ever been somewhere where people don't have any stuff and they're still happy? It's crazy. How can they be happy without all this stuff? Maybe you don't need all that stuff to make you happy. This is, this is where I want us... We, we need to have our, our toes stomped from time to time because we just get really comfortable. There's not a lot in American society that jars us out of this. Because we're living like we're supposed to as Americans. But Christian, you're not an American first. You're a Christian first. That's why you have brothers and sisters in North Korea and in Iran and in Armenia, and in Canada, believe it or not. They're brothers and sisters. They're our close relatives. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus, not because of their passport. Now, this all leads, this all leads into Jesus' final statement. Look at verse 31. Point number three. Following Jesus means expecting suffering. Following Jesus means expecting suffering suffering and taking the 12 he said to them see we are going up to jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over the gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon 
And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. What does it mean, everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished? Well, this is where we understand that the Old Testament is important. The Old Testament is telling us the story that leads us into the New Testament. You cannot understand the New Testament very well without the Old Testament. There are some who would call themselves evangelicals who want us to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. That Jesus came, the Old Testament is not important anymore. Well, that's really funny because Jesus seems to think it's important. Important enough to tell his disciples that they need to be aware of the prophecies. What prophecies? He doesn't tell us. Isaiah 53, suffering servant. Psalm 2, God's anointed, the nations are raging. Psalm 16, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Psalm 118, 22, the stone the builders rejected. Verse 32, mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, sounds a whole lot like Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9. Jesus is is not giving uh, specific verses here. Jesus is talking to people that knew their Old Testament and saying, all that stuff, it's all coming together right now as we go up to Jerusalem. He's giving them fair warning, and this is the most explicit one. Notice, delivered over to the Gentiles. That's new. Mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogging, death, rising. Seven explicit things detailed here that Jesus says is going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. Now look at this picture. This is, I'm stealing a little bit of Pastor Ron's thunder in two weeks. Down at the bottom is Jericho, where Jesus is about to enter in, in the last half of chapter 18. Jerusalem's way up there. Now, that, that looks like a flat map, but that's 3,000 feet of, of elevation change in about 18 miles. They're going to do that probably in a day. They're going to walk up there. Jesus, every step of the way from Jericho to Jerusalem, knowing this is where it all ends and where it all begins. Jesus is saying, telling the disciples, we're going up this road and we're going to the place where I will be delivered to the Gentiles, mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, killed, and I will rise. Jesus is, is actually giving the answer that the ruler asked him. How do I inherit eternal life? Follow the one who will die on a cross and rise from the dead. Jesus gives his disciples the answer here. Follow the one who who will have immense suffering. In fact, Jesus is basically saying, come follow me and suffer. And in the end, you will get way more than the suffering you go through. Lose your life to find it. Isn't that what Jesus said? This is the ultimate response that Jesus gives. And this is the plan from the beginning of time that God would save his creation by sending his own son to be part of that creation to save that creation. And this is that we've been to transition now to the final week of Jesus' life. We're almost there. And it's really important for us to think about Jesus is about to leave. He literally has people following him. They literally are following him. And he's saying, in order to follow me, you need to value me. You need to value God more than you value your stuff. Because your stuff gets a hold of your heart. And I want your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. The summary of the whole Old Testament law is loving God with your heart. And your mind and your soul and your strength. 
which means you can't devote it to other things primarily. So listen, don't hear me say that you, you shouldn't work hard and make money. You should work as hard as you can and make as much money as you can. As long as Jesus is the goal of that. By the way, you make as much money, you should save as much of that as you can, you should give as much of that as you can, because it's going to have a hold of your heart too. But Jesus wants us to work hard. Jesus wants us to show the people that we work with that we're following him primarily, even at our jobs, that we don't do this Sunday thing, and then during the week we just do whatever we can to make money. And we do the Sunday thing again. Jesus wants us to show our coworkers that we're doing our Sunday thing and our Monday thing and our Tuesday thing and our Wednesday thing and, our, and all the rest of the days, because I don't want to say them all, for Jesus. That, it's, that our whole life is wrapped up in Jesus. So that our vacations and our work and our spending and our budgets and all those things orbit around God. What a good God we serve that he would condescend to us unworthy and rebellious creatures. Notice Jesus is telling these guys what's going to happen and they still don't get it. So I have no illusions that I preach this amazing sermon on Sunday and everybody in the building is like repenting and weeping. Some of you still don't get it. You and your possessions will all burn if you value them more than God. But that's not the end because God says, come to me. I offer my son to save you. Your stuff's going to perish. How many of your things are just going to end up in a landfill in 10 years or less? Remember that old flip phone? Remember that flip phone, Don? Oh, there it is. If we don't trust in a good, good father who loves us, then we are not his children. And we won't inherit, like kids do, eternal life. Father, we thank you that you're good. Thank you that you're good to us. And by the death of your son on the cross, you have taken care of our sin. And by his resurrection from the dead, we have hope. Lord, I pray this week that we take a hard look at our possessions, at our stuff, and answer the why questions, not with American lenses, but with biblical lenses, that we would look at our stuff, that we would look at our things, that we would make sure that we hold on to them lightly with an open hand, and that what we hold tightly are things eternal. So, Father, we rejoice in our Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of our souls we will trust in him no other our souls are satisfied in him alone we sang that this morning lord make it true in our lives in jesus name amen